Well, morning, everybody. My name is Anders. Like Greg said, I'm from Plymouth Alliance, just down the road from you guys. It's actually a church that you guys helped plant 42 years ago. Um, that was long before I was born. Um, I grew up in a tiny town, middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, other side of the state, called Grantsburg. The thing that my hometown is most known for is it's the place that um, the, the championship water skip happens, where people race uh, snowmobiles across lakes, but in the summertime. So it's insane. I don't know why they do it. I got saved when I was 17 at a youth retreat because one of my friends was on fire for Jesus and more or less forced me to go there. I enjoy hanging out with my wife and my dog. I enjoy being outside. I enjoy traveling. I enjoy when mics don't pop like this. Um, on any given weekend, you will find me either with a fishing rod or a shotgun in my hand. I love being outside and hunting and fishing and hiking and doing all of that kind of stuff. I also enjoy working on cars. I grew up on a farm, and so we were a, we were a working farm, and so stuff was always breaking down. And I got pretty good at fixing cars, and a couple of months ago, I bought my first project car, and if you're a car person, it'll really impress you. It is a 1996 Ford Ranger. Now, I know that does not sound like the, the best project car, but I have all sorts of plans to turn it into a fiend on the drag strip. Um, all sorts of car stuff. We could go into the, the details of what it looks like to put a, put a cam in a 5.3 LS that fit that engine in a 96 Ford Ranger all this stuff that I'm hoping to do this summer. The problem is, however, that until that happens, I'd still like to be able to put around in this little truck. So a couple of months ago, when my power steering pump went out, I needed to fix it. And this is something that I've done, oh, I don't know, eight or 10 times before. And I was confident in my ability to do this repair. With something as simple as a power steering pump, a normal wear part that needs to be replaced on motors, I thought it'd be no sweat. It proved to be more difficult than I thought it would be, however. It took me many hours of work, several trips to the parts store, and two different pumps ordered before I finally was able to complete the job. You see, I have all these ideas of uh, engine swaps and custom-fitting drive shafts and building my own wiring harness and doing all of this stuff. But when it came to a simple routine repair, thank you. When it came to a simple routine repair, I struggled. See, a lot of the time, I think it's the same way in our faith. We can be discussing the, the complex intricacies of our faith. We can get really into the weeds on specific topics. But when it comes down to the basics, we can have a hiccup. We're not alone in this, though. Uh, you see, some people that walked with Jesus, saw him face to face, struggled with this exact same thing. Now would be a really good time to turn your Bibles or your phones to John 20. John 20, 24 through 29. We're going to be talking about Thomas. Thomas, also known as Doubting Thomas. 
John 20, 24 through 29. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. That might look a little different than um, your Bible. I promise it really is saying the same thing. It says, One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here, look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. See, right before this passage, Jesus had appeared to the, to the other disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. We don't know why Thomas wasn't there before. Maybe he wasn't feeling well. Maybe he hadn't got the memo that the disciples were meeting. Maybe he was scared to be seen with the other disciples, was scared of what the Jewish leaders were going to do to them next. We see that the, the disciples as a whole were scared of what the Jewish leaders were going to do. That's why they were meeting behind locked doors. Whatever it was, Thomas wasn't there, and because of that, he missed out on seeing Jesus. In verse 25, the disciples let Thomas know that they have seen Jesus. They didn't say this to upset or to scold Thomas for not being with them, but rather to encourage him. We have seen the Lord We've seen him. They were, so, they were so stoked that all of their, all their fear and their doubt and all of their uncertainty, Jesus had showed up. I really like reading Bible commentaries. And one of my favorite commentaries of all time was written by a guy who died in the year 1714, a man named Matthew Henry. On this passage, he wrote, they said this to inform him, we've seen the Lord, and we wish you'd been there to see him too, for you would have seen enough to satisfy yourself. Note, the disciples of Christ should endeavor to build up one another in their most holy faith, both by repeating what they've heard to those that were absent, that they might hear it at second hand, and also by communicating what they have experienced. Those that by faith have seen the Lord and tasted that he is gracious should tell others what God has done for their souls. Those that by faith have seen the Lord and tasted that he is gracious should tell others what God has done for their souls. The disciples had this incredible declaration to Thomas. These were people that he loved. These were men that Thomas trusted. He had spent the past uh, three years eating almost every meal with them. Um, sleeping next to them, hanging out with them, talking with them for almost every waking minute. And in verse 25, when the disciples say that they've seen Jesus, Thomas starts jumping up and down because he's so excited that Jesus had rose from the dead, right? No, he tells him there's no way. I won't believe unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. He saw his best friends say that they had seen Jesus, and he basically called them liars to their face. He didn't pay attention to what Jesus had said about rising on the third day, and to be fair, 
None of the other disciples paid attention to that either. He was, he was hurt, and he was afraid, and he just couldn't see it. He had pain, and he had doubt. He doubted that Jesus was who he said he was, and he demands this evidence, almost in this, like, pharisaical way. Like, in, in Matthew 16, when the Pharisees demand that Jesus show them a sign from heaven, and then they'll believe, or in, in Matthew 27, when Jesus is hanging up on the cross, and the Pharisees are mocking him, and they say, Jesus, just come down from there. If you, just, if you just come off the cross, if you just pull yourself off the cross, then we'll believe in you. Thomas is in that mindset. He's let his doubt lead him to this terrible pharisaical place where if only he could shove his hands into the wounds in Jesus' side, then he'd believe. And here we see Jesus wait eight days before appearing to the disciples again. But this time, Thomas is with them. Now, pause for a second on that because there are two things that we can see in this eight-day wait. The first thing is that God let Thomas sit in his doubt and in his uncertainty and in his messed-up bag of emotions for eight days. And I would wager that in that eight days, he was working on Thomas's heart. The second thing that I'd like to point out in this eight-day wait is how the disciples react to Thomas. Thomas had called them all liars, said he didn't believe a thing they were saying, said that he'd need to see Jesus for himself. I don't know about you guys, but if I was one of those disciples and Thomas had blown up at me, I do not know if I would want to hang out with him. And yet here they are, eight days later, showing up for their friend. And as the disciples are showing up for their friend, Jesus showed up. The passage goes on to say, eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Christ comes and stands in the midst of the disciples for their benefit and for Thomas's. Jesus had already completed the work of living the perfect life and dying for our sin and rising from the dead. And yet, with the gates of heaven ready to be opened to him, he lingered on earth and visited this little private meeting of his poor disciples. For the sake of the disciples and for the sake of Thomas, Jesus shows up. And we see Jesus address Thomas directly. Thomas who doubted, who denied. And here he uses Thomas's own words from eight days earlier to address him. In this moment, Jesus accommodates Thomas in his request. Rather than leave him in his unbelief, leave him in his unbelief or give him a tongue lashing, he tells Thomas to put his hands into his wounds, and the Greek word that's used here for put is more like a shove, thrust, rake. Shove your hands into my wounds so that you won't be faithless any longer. Believe. Thomas complies with Jesus telling him not to be faithless anymore, saying, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Can you imagine what Thomas was feeling when Jesus appeared in that room after hearing what the other disciples had said, blowing up at them, storming off for eight days, and now Jesus is there. 
You imagine the, the shame, the hurt, the fear, the excitement, the whole weird mess of emotions that he's going through. Jesus comes in and puts all of that to rest, proving to Thomas that he is who he says he is. That the same Christ that was crucified is now alive. See, guys, the men that followed Jesus weren't ignorant or blindly following, but rather they were cautious. They weren't perfect, but they doubted much in the same way that we do. And when Jesus shows up for Thomas, he believes. He believes that Jesus is God, not just in an overarching way, but in a personal way. Thomas has this moment where he completely submits to Jesus. And in his doubt, Jesus shows up. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, my Lord, referring to Adonai, which means my foundation, and say, my God, to Elohim, my prince and judge. Here, Christ owns Thomas as a believer, scolds him for his own words of unbelief, and commends the faith of those who believe without seeing. See, guys, there's a lot that we can learn about our own doubt and faith through this scripture. There are two main reasons why Thomas struggles here, and these are the same main reasons why we struggle with our faith. We struggle because of our emotions, and we struggle because of our flesh nature. First main reason why we struggle is because of our emotion. Maybe we are upset with God. Maybe we're upset with Scripture. Maybe we're upset with other Christians. We see this with Thomas, right? He had gone through something super traumatic. The guy who, who he had been following for years, the guy who he'd seen perform miracle after miracle, casting out demons and raising the dead and calming storms and multiplying food and healing the sick, this guy was dead. The guy that Thomas had put all of his hopes and ambitions into as being the Messiah, the one who would come to save his people. Do you think that Thomas might have been a little upset with God? Do you think he might have been a little disappointed and soul-crushed? Can you imagine the complexity of the emotions that were going around in his mind? Thomas was upset. His dreams were crushed. He was upset with the other disciples and probably upset with God. And what does he do? He allows his doubt and his fear and his anger to take control. Oftentimes, we do this in our own lives. When circumstances don't turn out how I want them to, when things don't go my way, when I pray and I pray and I pray for God to change a situation and he doesn't, when hard things happen or a dream of ours is crushed or something major comes out of left field, it can lead to a crisis in our faith. I had one of these crises my, my sophomore year of college. Like I said earlier, I grew up in a tiny town, 1,300 people, one stoplight, drive your tractor to school day. We, um, I graduated with 72 people. We all knew each other. We all, especially those of us that were there, kindergarten through 12th grade, we all knew each other's parents and, and grandparents, and we had all, you know, been over at each other's farms working on stuff. Two of the guys that I grew up with were named Joel and Jordan. Jordan was my first friend in preschool, and we spent a lot of time hanging out with each other. We'd do farm work together and work on each other's vehicles and go catch fish and, and hunt and do all of that. In my sophomore year of college, um, Joel and Jordan passed away in a car accident 
It was a single vehicle, alcohol-involved accident. They weren't wearing their seatbelts. Man, talk about a situation that did not turn out how I wanted it to turn out. Guys that I love lost their lives while doing something dumb. I was upset with God. I had some big emotions going on. I was upset that they wouldn't get to live their lives. I was confused and angry that this would happen. I was upset with them that they would do something so dumb. And when something terrible happens, when the hard stuff and the suffering hits, when we're upset with God or we're doubting why he would allow something like that to happen, we have two options. We can either run towards God or we can run away from God. And I know people that did both. I know people that when hard things hit have clung to Jesus, and I know people that have turned their back on him. For me, I would be pressed to find a time that I grew more exponentially in my faith than I did in the period after Joel and Jordan passed away. I put something like 1,200 miles on my car the week after they died from running back and forth between college and my hometown to make it to all my classes and make it to funerals and make it to hanging out with grieving friends. And in a time that was really, really tough, I held on to Jesus, not because I'm some super holy guy, but because I didn't have an option. I needed him to show up. And in the same way that when, when Thomas is doubting, Jesus shows up for Thomas. He did the same thing for me. When I was struggling, when my life felt like it was in shambles, he showed up. I needed to lean on him, and he was there for me to lean on him. And as a result of that leaning, God showed up, sanctifying me, making me look more like him. James 1, 2 through 4, says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind comes your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Through terrible situations, God shows up in our lives to take things that may seem irreconcilably evil and turn them around for his good. God can take things that may seem irreconcilably evil and turn them around for, for his good, for his purpose, and for his glory. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, don't hear what this verse isn't saying, because I think sometimes we can read Romans 8, 28, and we can read into it and say, if I follow God, good things will happen to me. If I follow God, my life will be easy and good things will happen to me. But that's not what it's saying, because not all things are good, not all outcomes are good, not all test results are good, not every time your friends get in a car is good. There is pain and evil and bad and suffering in this world, but what this verse is saying is that God can take the worst of circumstances and use them for the good of those who love him. I saw God do a good work in my own life through this terrible situation. I saw him do a good work in the lives of the people around me as 30-some of my classmates came into a first-time relationship with Jesus because the Lord moved in their hearts at Joel's funeral. He took something that seemed as if it had no redeemable qualities and used it for his good, for his glory, and for his purpose. 
And this is something that he does again and again in the lives of the people that love him. Perhaps you're not upset with God. Maybe you're upset with, because of another Christian. Maybe you've been hurt by somebody who says they're a follower of Jesus. Man, that is part of my story too. Part of the reason that I didn't start following Jesus until I was 17 is because I was deeply hurt by somebody who claimed to be a follower of Jesus, I think um, actually is a follower of Jesus. And I think one of my fatal errors before I came to know Jesus is that I equated what a sinful person had done with who God is. I think one of my fatal errors before I came to know Jesus is that I equated what a sinful person had done with who God is. I decided that because of what a person had done, God must not be who he says he is. I decided that if that's what a Christian is, that's what a Christian looks like, then I don't want to be like that. That was a fatal error on my part. People are going to be sinful until Christ returns in glory, making all things new, and taking away all sin and death and pain and sadness. We are going to be sinful until Christ returns in glory, taking away all, all sin and death and pain and sadness. And not everybody who says they know Jesus lives like it. And I am so sorry if you've been hurt by somebody who either claims to be or really is a follower of Jesus. If you need to dive into that with, some, with somebody, I guarantee either one of your pastors would love to walk through that with you. I guarantee that your home group would love to talk with you about that. However, we can support you in the messiness of life we want to. We know that one of the main reasons why we struggle is because of our emotions, whether, something, whether it's something traumatic that has happened and it causes us to question God, or whether it's pain that we have with another Christian. One of the main reasons why we struggle with our faith is because of our emotion. As a second reason, why we struggle is because of our flesh nature. I spent summers working at Big Sandy Camp in northern Minnesota when I was in college. I spent three summers up there, two years I was working as a counselor, and the third year I was in charge of all the volunteers. And that is one of the most blessed experiences of my life, um, being able to, to work with students up there, to see students come to know Jesus. It was awesome. One week, I had a camper, let's call him Dave, who was upset with Scripture. Dave was struggling with what Scripture had to say and how it affected his life. He wanted to shape Scripture to fit into to his life. He was struggling with this problem that a lot of Christians struggle with, where he had a box that he was ready for God to go into. A safe little box where nothing would change and he would have the best of both worlds. A safe little box where sin wouldn't be sin, where life wouldn't be difficult, where everything would work out just the way he wanted it to. A little box where the only thing that would change in his life was he'd have standing plans on Sunday morning. Too often, I think we do that. You see, Dave showed me his Bible where he had crossed out passages that he didn't agree with. Too often I think we're guilty of the same thing. Perhaps we don't expressly cross out verses that we don't agree with in our Bibles. Whether consciously or subconsciously, we can fall into this habit of looking for the viewpoints that we want to hear. Maybe we don't expressly cross out 
verses in our Bibles, but it's easy for us to get into the habit of looking for viewpoints that we want to hear. Too often we can get in the habit of changing Scripture to fit into our lives rather than letting Scripture change and shape us. We can read into Scripture what we want it to say rather than let the text speak into our lives and shape how we live. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what's true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong, and it teaches us to do what's right. It equips us, it corrects us when we're wrong, teaches us to do what's right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Do you see the contrast here? When we read into Scripture what we want it to say, we reject the truth and chase after what we want to hear. But when we pull out of Scripture what it is saying, and we allow it to work in us, it corrects us and teaches us to do what's right. The last half of verse 17 says God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. God uses Scripture to prepare us, to equip us, to make us look more like him. And when our point of view doesn't line up with what Scripture says, Scripture is always right. When our point of view doesn't line up with what Scripture says, Scripture is always right. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 says, For a time's coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They'll reject the truth and chase after myth. How often do we fall into this trap? Putting into Scripture what we want it to say rather than allowing it to prepare and equip and make us look more like Jesus. Today, maybe there is some tension because Scripture says something that you might not agree with. Maybe you're doubting what Scripture has to say, or it says something that you wish it didn't because it would make life a whole lot easier. When we're, when we're struggling in our, in our faith, when something traumatic happens, when we have that big moment, we have the two options, right? We can either run towards God or, or run away from God. I would argue that we have that same option when we come upon something in Scripture that we don't agree with. And I'd ask that in the same way that you run to God when things are tough, when you're upset with him and doubting him for something that's happened, would you press into him when you see something in Scripture that causes conflict in your heart? Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. See, Scripture isn't just a book that was written a long time ago that has no relevance for today. It was written for them then, and it's also written for us now. Scripture is a sanctifying and purifying thing, so let's let it sanctify and purify us. And when we doubt, when we don't know if we agree with Scripture, let's lean into that. Because one of the coolest things about our faith is that it really does hold up. You won't have a question that will unravel the Christian faith. So address questions that you have. I think that's one of the things that um, 
becomes the biggest mental roadblock. I see it all the time in my students. One of the biggest mental roadblocks is I feel like they need to put on the church mask and be the, be the good Christian in church. And they, they, if they ask questions, then they won't look like the good Christian. Will you take that mask off? today, because our faith really does hold up. Jesus really does hold up. Scripture really does hold up. And if you're struggling today, and if you have questions, would you ask those questions? Would you let your pastors and the believers sitting next to you walk through that with you? If you're struggling today and you're wondering what your next steps are, There are three main ways that we can stand firm in our faith when we're struggling. There are three main ways that we can stand firm in our faith when we're struggling. Three main ways that you can address questions and doubts and emotions and concerns that you have so that you can come out of it stronger in your faith. The first thing that you can do is go to the source. Go to the source. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. I know we read it. I'm going to read it again. It says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what's true and make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what's right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. The primary way that you can discover more about who God is is to spend time in scripture, to go to the source of everything that we believe and might be confused about and let him speak to you. If you're questioning who God is, if you want to know more about him and and what he actually says, spend time in your Bible. Be intentional about letting it speak to you. Be intentional about pulling out of Scripture what it says rather than putting into it what you want it to say. Go to the source. The second thing that we can do is rest in the source. Rest in the source. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testing that we do, yet he didn't sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. One of the things that our district superintendent has impressed upon us as pastors. Our our district superintendent is the guy who um, oversees all the Christian and Missionary Alliance churches. Uh, In our district, he oversees um, Wisconsin and the UP, all the Christian and Missionary Alliance churches there. And one of the things that he has impressed upon us as pastors again and again and again is that prayer should be our highest priority. If you're struggling, pray. If things are going well, pray. Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We can go to him with all of our stuff, with all of our mess. God already knows what you're going through. We serve a God who is uh, omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. We don't have a, a thought or a deed that is unknown to God. We see that with Thomas, right? When Jesus uses Thomas's own words from eight days earlier to address him, How did Jesus know what Thomas had said? 
Because he was there, right? Though they didn't see him, he was there. We serve a God who is omnipresent. He already knows what you're going through. So would you be real with him about it? And in Philippians 4, we see a promise. We see a promise of God in Philippians 4. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And notice the if-then statement there. If we don't worry about anything and instead pray about everything, tell God what we need and thank him for all he has done, then we will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. We have a promise in Philippians 4. So when we struggle, it's important that we press into the Lord to spend this intentional time with him, to rest in him. Go to the source. Rest in the source. And the third thing that you can do is connect with others. Go to the source, rest in the source, and connect with others. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. In Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. God has designed his church to encourage one another. If you're struggling, lean on other believers. Let the church be there for you and walk with you through doubts and emotions and questions. Allow the Lord to work through his people in your heart. Guys, there are a whole bunch of reasons why we struggle, whether it's because of something that happened or doubts that you're having. Whatever is going on, would you press into Jesus today? Would you bring emotions and and doubts and whatever conflict you have to him with open hands? Would you dive into scripture and prayer and time with other believers? Would you go to the source, rest in the source, and connect with others to help address your doubts? Because I promise you, our faith really does hold up. Jesus really does hold up. Scripture really does hold up. Will you pray with me? Lord, we love you. God, we thank you that we serve a God who really does hold up. Lord, would you do a work in our hearts? God, you alone know where each of us is at. You alone know the condition of each of our hearts. So would you do a work in each of us today, wherever we're at, Lord? Would you reveal yourself to us? Would you glorify yourself through us? Your name. Amen.